Testing, testing, check, check. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being here today. Um, I did not come to your online Oxford presentation, Joel Kay, but I will uh, watch the video of it or, or something if that's a possibility. So I'm so glad that you all are here today and we are going to take a look at a video. Some of you will recall that about a month ago, a couple of days, it'll be a month, uh, we released a video on John Steingard, who was the lead singer or is the lead singer, I'm not sure what's up with that, of Hawk Nelson and uh, no longer believes. I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what term he prefers, whether it's atheist, agnostic atheist, or just uh, he doesn't prefer a term right now, doesn't believe, I, I don't know. But, um, but there was another conversation, there's actually been a couple other conversations on Unbelievable Radio with Justin Brierley. And in the most recent one, he talks with a Christian apologist and friend of mine, Sean McDowell, and they had a really good conversation. Let me just say at the beginning of this episode, a couple of things. First of all, again, thank you that you're here. Number two, if you would like to support this program, um, we don't require it. We will do this for free no matter what, but you can help us make the show better. Uh, these mics, things you don't even see, uh, equipment you don't even see that I see in front of me right now services that we pay for to make this possible. Um, you can help do that. You can help us with that uh, at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. And the link is also in the description for this video. So really appreciate that. That's really, really helpful. You get five seminary level classes, full classes with PowerPoint, and you can take those PowerPoints and do whatever you want with them. You can, uh, you get several eBooks uh, for free. I mean, you're not really getting them for free because you're a patron, but you're getting them uh, much more cost effectively than you would otherwise. You get the first hour long episode of my documentary on the seven churches in 
uh, Turkey, um, modern day Turkey, which was Asia Minor. You get a whole bunch of other stuff, lost episodes that we never released. So hope you'll check that out. Um, but I also want to say at the beginning of this episode that I really, really appreciate John. Um, there are Christians who I think would approach someone like John with a lack of humility, a lack of um, appreciation for his the manner with which he has these discussions. And so, John, I'm going to assume, I don't know if you'll ever see this, but I'm going to assume that you are. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that I, I, I like the way you have this back and forth with Sean. It seems that you're really open. It seems that you really are trying to figure things out. And, and I appreciate that. I like that. So, um, so I, I just want to say that up front because there's nothing in this. If there's anything I say kind of to push back or in response to what you say, it won't be it won't be like an attack on you or something. Um, it will be a response to the ideas and, um, ideas are not persons. And so in that sense, we can respond to those. So, uh, thought that was great. I thought Sean did a great job. And really one of the things that I want us to see here is that several of the things that Sean says, or the topics that John brings up are directly relevant to the things that we've been saying on this show for the past year. And really for the past couple of months, that, you know, one of the things we want to do with this show is we want to show that we love atheists, we love unbelievers, and we want to try and meet you where you are and respond to the things that are bothering you the most or that you have questions about the most. And lately, we're seeing several interactions that are, are demonstrating that. Um, I'll give you another example. William Lane Craig recently had a discussion with Alex O'Connor, um, who goes by the name on YouTube, Cosmic Skeptic. Um, much of what Craig says uh, is stuff that I've said on the show, which is no surprise. Uh, I'm influenced by Craig, but William Lane Craig also brings out this thing about free will and how the first cause must be a person because of because it had to have free will. And I've been arguing that for over a year. I've never heard Craig say that. I got that from I heard J.P. Moreland say something like that years ago. Kind of developed it, and and now I'm seeing that Craig says uh, I'm, Craig is offering a similar response. And it's in response to questions that Alex has had. So the point is, a lot of the issues that are being raised here lately are, are showing me that I think um, there's confirmation in what we're doing here in this ministry, that these are the issues that are being raised. All right, so enough with that. What we're going to do is we're going to jump into this. We're not going to do a response to the entire thing. I've just picked out several issues that I think are mostly things that are relevant to what I think unbelievers, what's actually going on. Now, that's not, to, that's not to say I don't think they're being honest. I don't think some of them I don't think are being honest, but I won't tell you who I think those people are. The point is, I, I think that, that um, what's going on in the, in the mind of an unbeliever who, is, who's, who, may is, who may be open in the way that I think John is kind of matches what I've expected all along. And so uh, we're going to look at those things, and that's kind of the theme is, will John Steingard ever believe again? Well, I don't know whether he's going to believe. But I can tell you that some of the issues that he reveals about his thinking, John, some of the things that you show us about how you're thinking about these things, I think are true of some of the atheists in this audience for Trinity Radio. So maybe not the real loud, brash atheists that make snarky comments, but some of you who don't do that. I think some of you have some of the th same things going on in your mind that John has, and I think we can address some of those. I think Sean did a good job, but I think we can say more. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. And we're going to get started with this interesting clip that has to do with what you're really searching for. Let's go ahead and go to John right now. Like Sean, like you said, like, like what is true? Like, I really want what is true. And to, to be totally clear, like, 
to this day, my preference is that there is a loving father, you know, that there is a God who has that persona. Um, I would prefer that to be true. I, I went through a period where, where I really, when I was really doubting, uh, where, where I was, I was really depressed because the idea, uh, it's like losing faith in God was like losing your security, losing the, this idea that someone's looking out for you, looking, you know, has a plan for your life. It was devastating. Um, but sorry to, to more to your question, like what that process was like, I, I, I was reading, I went through a season where I was getting up at like three in the morning so that I could read for like three or four or five hours before anyone got up. Um, and you know, I was reading, uh, Ravi Zacharias at the same time as I was reading Rob Bell and, you know, reading Sam Harris at the same time as Lee Strobel. So like, I was I was trying to make sure I was jumping around between people of different points of view so I wasn't pigeonholed into someone else's perspective. Um, and I just came away with this feeling like, oh, everyone is just deciding for themselves what they want to believe. And there's no way to know for sure. That That was the conclusion I reached. And then when I reached that, I, and a real key point for me was the inerrancy of the Bible and going like, okay, if, if the Bible is not the perfect word of God, like I was taught, then like to your point, Sean, about the anchor, like what's the anchor? Um, and that was a, that was a big turning point for me that, that felt like a loss. It didn't feel like a victory, you know? Okay, so there are, I don't want to lose the, the, the thread that we're going down here. There's something, there's a couple of really important things I want to say in response to that. But there were a couple of questions asked. Um, one was by QWERTY that says, quite plainly, why is what some former Christian celebrity thinks about the religion important? Well, the reason I think it's important is because a lot of what we do on this channel is respond to the people who are either the influencers out there on YouTube who are changing people's hearts and minds, or um, the high-minded, academically-minded skeptics that, that, you know, are professors somewhere or writing books or whatever and are popularizers in that sense. And they have their own issues. You know, they, 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 sometimes it's the same issues that are impacting the everyday skeptic, but to a much grander scale. But sometimes there are things that these people haven't even thought of. And so what you get from someone like this, I think, is is closer to what the guy who's not obsessed with online world discussion, worldview discussions is actually thinking about. I mean, some of the questions that John asks are really getting to the heart of the issue. And so uh, the heart of the issue for him, like why he's um, having trouble with this. And so I think in that sense, and because he's an influencer, it, it helps in that, in that way. So I think that's helpful. And then um, uh, Travis Lee says... My grandfather is agnostic, and his big question is, why is there evil? Now, that's one of those issues that the academically-minded atheist brings up that also the atheist on the street might bring up. And But the atheist academic, obviously, is going to have a, a much more sophisticated approach oftentimes with syllogisms and arguments and things like that. But um, that does come up in this discussion. Now, th we've talked about that a lot lately on this show, so I'm not really going to spend as much time talking about the problem of evil here. But I, I do 
see that as, as an important piece. And it was a piece for him. And we did respond to that when we approached this last month when we first discussed him. So all of these things really important. Um, so, all right, let's, uh, let, let's talk about what he just said here. So first of all, I want you to notice he says, um, I, I'm just looking for the truth. Uh, let, let's go ahead and hear the very first part of this again. Like Sean, like you said, like, like what is true? Like, I really want what is true. And okay. So he says, I, I just really want what is true. But then later notice when he says, and this is not me trying to catch him in some kind of a gotcha moment. John, if you're listening, I, I, I'm, I'm offering this up as a sounding board sort of, but he says people just, you know, he says, I, I just want to know what the truth is. But then later on, when he talks about reading Ravi Zacharias and Sam Harris and all these things, he says, what struck me is that people just decide whatever's true is what they want to be true. Now, there's a few ways we can look at that. There's a few interesting questions that can be raised there, right? Like, okay, um, are you saying that you're just believing what you want to be true? Well, clearly not. You've just told us that you want Christianity to be true, or at least you want there to be a benevolent God. Um, but you're going down a path that, that says, no, there's probably not. So, so, it, so what we get to is actually, it's certainly not true for you if we're, to, if we're taking you at your word, which I am. It's certainly not true for you, but you're saying in, maybe you're saying in general, people just believe whatever they want to believe. But these are very, you know, the people you mentioned are people that spend their lives thinking about these worldview discussions. Are you saying perhaps you could be saying that only atheist, agnostic, unbelievers are the kinds of people that, um, that, that go against the grain and believe what they don't want to believe. But I don't think you'd say that. You don't strike me as the type of person that would say that. I didn't sense that coming from you. And of course, there are many atheists that will happily tell you, yeah, I don't believe and I don't want it to be true. You know, so uh, that was the famous Christopher Hitchens sort of thinking. So what I think we find here with this comment is in your in your own thinking here, John, what I think we find is and maybe this is going on with some of you out there listening who see yourselves in what John is saying is that just simply can't be the case. It can't be the case that at least everyone uh, you can't say everyone is just believing what they like to be true. If you're telling us that for you personally, you're believing what you what you think is the case that you don't want to be true. You want there to be a benevolent God, but you're saying you don't think that's the case. So people don't always just decide what they want to be true. But then he follows this with something very, very interesting, and it has to do with certainty. And so he says they just can't know for sure. Now, that's a really interesting thing, because as some of you have heard me say many times on this show, and really lately, I've been hammered for saying this, but I've been hammered by people for saying this, is that often, and I don't think this is always the case, but oftentimes it is the case with skeptics, with atheists on the Internet, at least. And, and I think it's true in general, with, but I don't think the people in general in public have really thought, you know, I, for some of them, I don't think it's hit yet. So I'm not trying to say you're not smart or that you haven't thought things through. That's not what I'm saying. But I think for some everyday skeptics, this hasn't hit the brain the right way yet. And it is, what do you mean we can't know for sure? Because that's a tricky word for sure, or phrase for sure. Um, you know, I think that we're talking about degrees of confidence or degrees of certainty, right? I've been accused of saying about certain people, like perhaps T-Jump or Matt Dillahunty or others, that well, what the, what they whether they're coming out and saying this or not, or whether they realize this or not, it strikes me that at least with certain central things, they're looking for something like absolute certainty. 
Now, uh, we've gone over this terrain, but Cartesian certainty is this idea that uh, you have this, this, what can you know? If you scrape away all the things that, that you could reasonably doubt, what can you know for sure beyond doubting? And for Descartes, that was, well, I'm thinking, so I must exist. I think, therefore, I am, right? That's the famous thing. So I, I know that much is true. I can't really doubt that at all. Um, and even recently in the discussion between inspiring philosophy and cosmic skeptic, Alex said that, you know, typically in philosophical circles, we think about what, what do we start with? Well, we, we can basically start with, I think, therefore I am the Cartesian thing, but that's not exactly right. Is it? I mean, to, in, to start with, I mean, I agree like that for a lot of people, well, that's the best we can do, but that's not really where you can start because if you're being completely honest, you have to say, well, why is it that I can conclude that since I'm thinking, therefore I must exist? Well, it's because I reason there. Well, so I can trust my reasoning then, right? Um, well, how do we know you can trust your reasoning? And so we end up with this circular logic. If you really want to go down that road and be completely honest, you can't have that kind of level of Cartesian certainty about anything at all. So you have to start with these certain things like I'm just going to start with the presupposition that I think, therefore, I am, and we'll reason out from there. Now, when we talk, but I think what, so I think on the, what that gets us, first of all, is whether you're talking about something scientific, whether you're talking about how you reason about the cosmos or the world, or whether you think Christianity is true, you can't have certainty. On that kind of for sure, right, you can say something like nobody can know for sure, but that is a complete waste of time. That is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything because you can't know anything that way. But maybe that's not what John means. Maybe John means something like, well, you can't know it with the kind of confidence like um like with visual certainty, like I, it's almost like I'm seeing it and I know that it's I know that it's true in that empirical sort of way. Well, again, you can't even when we go back to the discussion uh the debate I did a debate response to um uh, Randall Rouser and uh, Samuel Nassan against uh, T-Jump and Matt Dillahunty, we saw there that, that that doesn't work out either for some of the same epistemological problems. Um, and you say, well, something like scientific evidence, empirical evidence. But of course, you don't know those conclusions are true either. You can be wrong about those too. So, so really what we're talking about is a degree of confidence. And this is why I love what um, Sean says next. Listen to what Sean says in response to this. Two things jumped out to me. One, I went through a period of going, gosh, I can't know for sure either. But that's where I shifted my thinking. I don't think mm. knowledge requires certainty. If my level was, I have to know for sure that Christianity is true, I would not be a Christian. I live with doubts. And even in Jude, it says, you know, have mercy on those who doubt. To me, doubt is not the opposite of faith or belief or knowledge necessarily. The question for me was, what is the most reasonable? What makes the most mm -hmm. sense, even if mm -hmm. I have some doubts and questions? Because I know so many people who say, if I can't know for sure, I can't know anything. I think there's a lot of stuff we know for which we don't have certainty. So that's how I approach my faith. So think about what I've just said about the fact that in, in reality, you can't have absolute certainty really about much of anything, if anything, right? Uh, you know, the, Christians can talk about presuppositions, presuppositionalism um, as an approach to apologetics would, would frame this up differently. But, but let's just grant it. Okay, you can't know 
if we're going with the skepticism here, you can't know anything with absolute certainty with that level of Cartesian certainty, right? But do you, but can you still claim to know things? Well, of course you can claim to know things. I can claim to know um, when I'm talking to my wife on the phone that it's my wife, although it's theoretically possible. It's a really advanced Android that is a copy of my wife's. Where they used an MRI machine and copied my wife's neural network so that it sounds exactly like my wife and is replica. But come on, I know it's my wife on the phone. right? I mean, we, we know things even though we can have doubts and, and don't have absolute certainty. I mean, that's where it's just getting completely absurd when we're thinking on the, on that level. So, um, so that's really important to, uh, to, to mention here. So, th- but that's, uh, that, that's an important feature because what Sean says is basically what we're doing is inference to the best explanation. And I love that, John, that you got to hear Sean saying this because I know you're a bright guy and you've probably heard people say this before, but so often, and let me say this, and, and I think some people that are into apologetics, um, aren't really going to appreciate my saying this, but there is a great book out there called, um, uh, reason for the hope that is within edited by, um, Michael J. Murray, I think it is. And, and it's a collection of young philosophers coming out of, um, Notre Dame and what, and, and what they are saying is they're saying, look, at least in the, in the introduction, what Michael J. Murray says is, look, many Christian apologists are going for this kind of sledgehammer, he calls it sledgehammer apologetics, where it's like, you can know for sure with like Cartesian certainty, it's a slam dunk, blah, blah, blah. He says, but that's not really, that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing is here is we're showing it is, there is really good reason to believe. So, you know, and we would say to the inference to the best explanation, such as the best explanation. That's why you'll hear me say things like God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Um, God is the best explanation for the design that we see in the universe, for the morality that we see. Uh, these kind of things. Um, the resurrection is the best explanation for the events surrounding the death of Jesus. Th- these are the important things to keep in mind. And while I personally do th- come really close to a sledgehammer apologist myself when it comes to God's existence, and I think about something like the Kalam cosmological argument, which for me is about as close to a slam dunk proof as you're ever going to get um, for all the skeptic chanting against it. Um, we're still doing inference to the best explanation. What seems like the best explanation? And then on the other hand, what we have is with atheists is we have sledgehammer atheists. So don't think this is just like a Mickey Mouse style of apologetics over here doing this. Atheists do this too. How do they do it? Well, if it's not a slam dunk, then I shouldn't believe. If there's any way to wiggle out of this, then I shouldn't believe. If it's not for sure on whatever explanation of for sure, as we've been saying, you want to go with, then I don't have to believe or I shouldn't believe. If you did that with other things in your life, you couldn't live your life. I mean, we don't do that with anything except the things that, frankly, we don't want to believe or that others have convinced us. See, when I look at John, I, I don't, I can't psychoanalyze him. I can't do that, John. And I, and I, I hope if you hear me, you're hearing my spirit about this. I'm not trying to like, I, I don't know you. I, I'd like to know you, but I don't know you. And I'd be happy to talk to you just like you did with, with Sean, if you like. But the, but the thing that, that I think happens with, with some people is not that they're choosing to believe what they want to believe, even though he recognizes that does happen. What happens with some people is I think what, what we see is it, the cultural message is so strong, and it is on my life too, 
The cultural message of scientism and empiricism, which, by the way, is not the majority of the world, right? And never has been. This idea that if science doesn't give it to you, then, well, you maybe shouldn't believe it. Or if it has anything to do with, you know, just your personal experience, and we'll get to that later, then, then that's not really good evidence. Look, the, the reality is that um, you can get to this point because of cultural uh, dirt that gets on us from our culture. And just like if we were in some country where there was too much of a superstitious uh, thing in the culture, we, we got to be careful not to get the dirt of that too much on us as well. But our culture has got plenty of dirt and we've got to be really careful about that. So you're so on any definition of for sure. Yeah, you're not going to know for sure. But in everything in life, you're not going to know for sure. So why is that a problem? What we want to look at is what do we have good reason to believe? And then believe that. All right. So, um, so that's, that's what I want to say about that. But then he brings up this issue of inerrancy and man, do I resonate with this? And I could tell that Sean did too, because I like Sean, I was raised with a dad. My dad pastored one of the first, you know, one of the early mega churches in America, um, in 19, in the early 1980s, 5,000, uh, members in regular attendance. And my dad was strong on the inerrancy of scripture. And so for, um, this was true for, um, uh, Rhett and Link on, on, of Good Mythical Morning. We have an episode on that. It's also true for John. When that, when he thought that went, when he thought that inerrancy went, for him, all of it went. Or at least, that's not fair. He didn't exactly say that. But it was a major blow. He said something like it was a real powerful blow or it caused a, uh, some kind of a destabilization because that was the thing that he could kind of, that was the linchpin. That was the thing that kind of held it together. And of course, for those of us who are raised in that atmosphere, particularly those of us, and I know he's not from the American South, but in the American South, we're, we're raised with this, you know, um, the authority of the Bible, you know, you, you've got to have a standard, but you know what? I don't see why, if it were the case that inerrancy turned out to be false. And of course, that's a very important issue. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if it turned out to be false, I don't see why it still the Bible still wouldn't be our authority or couldn't be our standard. I, I don't I don't see that. Um, all right, so let's um, let's 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 hear what Sean has to say because it backs that up so well. When you mentioned inerrancy, I also was taught the Bible is the inerrant, perfect word of God. I mean, few people in the last half century defended Scripture more than my dad. But I also, mm -hmm. in my mind, I say, okay, what's the heart? central issue yes mm -hmm. it's true mm -hmm. but to christianity it's not inerrancy if we had an errant bible and jesus rose from the grave christianity would still be true right so listen to me very closely on this this is my chant that so often comes up on this channel obviously i believe in a robust christianity and a high view of biblical uh, inerrancy however let me just, for anyone listening, John or anyone else, I love what Sean is saying here because the truth is, if you found an error in the Bible, if you found a hundred errors in the Bible, would it mean that God doesn't exist? Uh, no, it would not. Why? Because you, we have arguments and reasons to believe that God exists even if we didn't have the Bible. Uh, that may not sound so pious to some Christians, but it's still true. If we didn't have the Bible or if the Bible was not, inerrant. Would it mean that Jesus did not rise from the dead or that God didn't raise Jesus from the dead? No, it would not. Why? Because we have a historical case for the resurrection that yes, 
sometimes involves scripture, but it's scripture that is granted to us by um, historical Jesus scholars who are not even Christians. They're like, yeah, that's that's uh, more than likely a historical saying of Jesus or belief or truth about the early church or whatever. Um, truths like that Jesus thought of himself as God's special kingdom agent to bring about the kingdom, um, that, that uh, he died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, that his earliest followers had experiences that at least they believed to be experiences of the risen Christ, that they were willing to face persecution for this. I mean, the, the case that we make, if the Bible had errors, that would not mean that Christianity goes away. And there have been pockets of Christianity that have thrived without the belief in biblical inerrancy. Now, again, don't think I'm saying that the authority of the Bible is not important. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying why I've never understood it. And I think I have to take responsibility on behalf of my kin. And by which I mean people who have served as pastors and evangelists who have said things like, and I don't know that I've ever said this, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that it's true that I've said it when I was younger. Uh, people that say things like, if one word in this Bible is, isn't true, then none of it's true because they're trying to protect the inerrancy of the Bible and they're banking on their congregation, not wanting to say that the whole Bible is false. But think about that. Logically speaking, if one word is false, it's all false. That doesn't even follow logically. There are math books and science books that have errors in them. It doesn't mean the whole book is false, right? It's mostly true. So this sort of a reason for rejecting, I understand how emotionally it can be a heavy blow. But one of the valuable things, and I didn't think of it to say it till just now, but that Sean brought out of this was, while it is the case that often skeptics will characterize believers as being the ones who rely on emotional stuff and all these kind of things, and kind of going with a gut feeling and that sort of thing, um, and that's not entirely false. We're going to talk about emotions and, and uh, experience later. But while we're characterized as, you know, leaning too heavily on that stuff and the skeptics just going with facts and beliefs and reason and science and all that kind of stuff, the reality is the emotional side of the skeptical approach to this is there too. And it can be a problem. So you have to look at what do we have evidence for? And though that can be emotionally destabilizing to find out that something you held and cherished throughout your life as a central truth of Christianity, that being inerrancy might not be true. Not that I'm saying that, but I'm saying that you, that you concluded that it might not be true. I see how that's emotionally destabilizing, but it speaks not to the truth of the Christian message. And I think that that is very, very important for people to uh, keep in mind. So, all right, so we've, we've done that. Now let's go on to the next thing that he has to say. They got into a discussion of the problem of evil, and I thought it was really moving how uh, John talked about the fact that he went and kind of served as a filmmaker to capture this situation of orphans um, where in some country where uh, the, the parents have been killed and now these orphans are just wandering around in the in the jungle or whatever. And, and he's talking about the, the horror of that. And, and I, I'm assuming that he, he's saying, like, what, why wouldn't God stop this? You know, that's part of the problem of evil. Again, I, I, Sean didn't get to kind of draw this out as much, but it is often very interesting that. You know, sometimes in our chat or in our, our uh, comments, we'll see people, you know, very much Western people in very comfortable Western lifestyles saying, well, you know, these, uh, you know, you say that God loves everybody and is benevolent and all this. But what about all these people in third world countries and developing world countries who are dying of malaria and starvation and all these kind of things? And, and they, they know the truth. They see it the way it is. And occasionally have someone jump in from a developing world country and say, yeah, but I, that's me you're talking about. And I totally believe, you know, um, sometimes the suffering that we see 
in those places that those people are experiencing resonates with the message of the gospel, which very much endorses, endorses, is it the right word, um, admits, uh, forewarns that you will experience suffering in this world and that this world is not as it should be. Their experience matches it matches that reality. Um, whereas people can't see it as well that, that the world matches that when they're in a very comfortable, um, uh, situation here. So, um, all right. So, so let's, uh, I was, I was getting caught up looking at the chat for a minute. Um, all right. So, so they're having this discussion about the problem of suffering and Sean makes the case about, well, it's a fallen world. Like I've just been discussing. And here's what John has to say in response, which is a natural, um, impression to come away with. You know, to, to your point, Sean, about, you know, like talking about how this is a fallen world, like I, I sort of back up from there and I go like, well, he made it. And so like, I'm not, you know, like if God created the universe and created, you know, existence, you know, you let's, let's do an Avengers reference and, you know, he has the reality stone, right? He has the reality stone. Reality can be whatever he wants it to be. And somehow, if he's real, if he's there, he chose reality to be what it is. And he chose, if this world is broken, he, you know, if he made it, then he chose it to be this way. And so somehow, the, 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 the brokenness of the world, if he is real, the brokenness of the world falls back on his plate to me. Okay, now before we before you really comment, th this is kind of a two-parted, multifaceted thing. Let's let's hear the next thing that he says because he he talks about again one of the issues we've been focusing on lately is this issue of heaven and how can he have free will in heaven? Because obviously he's aware of this response to pain and suffering. Well, God wanted to create a world with evil in it. Now, before we go on to that, let me let me just you know I know that for some of you this is the first time you've ever seen this program and and for you this is new but for some people they've heard me say this before and so i want to i want to be very clear um that you know that i know we've we're covering some terrain here that we've already covered but it's good to get it by repetition i think but um the reason that the free will is a good response to why there's pain and suffering in the world why god would create a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it is because Love. Love is this overarching good. God wanted a people to love him. The Bible teaches in the New Testament, he wanted us to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. It's all about love. And everyone who has experienced genuine love understands that to be an intrinsically good thing. Now, if you want real love, you can't create automatons who are just determined to do everything the way you want it all the time. If you want real love, you need free creatures. And so uh, God creates... Uh, a world with free creatures. But even if you're God, for reasons that Sean is going to draw out indirectly, and then I'll comment more on in a moment, if you're going to give man free will, you can't force them to freely always do the right thing because that would be a contradiction. So you have to, even if you're God, there is the reality that man is going to use his freedom for evil and pain and suffering will result. But you get the love. And God can restore creation. And of course, that's what we believe in the end. So many times skeptics will take the suffering and the pain and kind of excise that from the ultimate eschatological truth that we're going to have this um, new heaven on the new earth in the end and God is going to make all things right. So all of this is important to keep in mind. And it seems that he's aware of all of this. And uh, 
so he so he brings this this thing and he also brings the heaven thing. So let's hear him talk about heaven now. But it seems to me that in heaven, you know, there will be no more sin. So does that mean there's no free will in heaven? And it seems to me that like, why couldn't God just, if God created us and wanted to be in relationship with us and wanted there to be no, no sin, no separation between us and him, why not just create a world like heaven? Why even go through this, uh, the preliminary? Yeah, so uh, here is Sean's response, and then I'll expand on it. Well, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. He can do everything. But there's certain things that even power itself can't do. God cannot make a square circle. It's impossible. I'm not sure God could make a heavenly state and skip the in-between state to get there. Here's why. Because in heaven, all the people who are there have chosen by their own free will to be in relationship with God. And then when we get to heaven, there's not only a choice to do this, there's a full transformation of the spirit of Christ in our character from the inside out. And I would argue that we do have free will in heaven, but just like you and I wouldn't take our kids to use a morbid example, over freeway and like drop and go, hey, I wonder if they can bounce. Like I have the power to do that, but there's absolutely nothing inside of me that would ever do that. And neither would either of the two of you because we understand how devastating that would be. Okay, so there are, as I said in the last broadcast we did last week on Friday, that there are different approaches people take. William Lane Craig, if I understand him correctly, takes more of the approach of, well, you know, the way that it's going to work in heaven is, you just won't have the option to sin. You know, that, that, that particular thing will be removed. But as I and others have argued, I don't see that working exactly, though Craig is one of my heroes, because sin is not like a one thing that you can just remove. Like we talked about um, how maybe Alice is an alcoholic. And well, if we could just remove alcohol from planet Earth and the ability to create alcohol, well, then, then all of a sudden she wouldn't have a problem anymore. It, sin isn't like that. Sin isn't a product that you can just take and remove. Sin results from the choice to disobey God um, or rebel against God at any particular moment at any time of day. I don't see how you just remove that without removing uh, free will. But I take the approach that I'm glad to see Sean takes which is he, he takes the analogy that I give and ratchets it up. So my example was my children used to eat, used to put sand in their mouth in the sandbox. It only took a couple of times doing that and they don't do it anymore. I don't stay up at night worrying that when they're 35 years old, they're going to be eating sand out of a sandbox in the same way, experiencing this life and choosing Christ uh, above the dirt and sand of this world. We're choosing not to eat sand anymore. And then in, in the new heaven and the new earth, the idea of eating sand will, will be absurd. The idea of sin will be absurd. Like the idea of eating sand for a 35 year old woman would be absurd. And he ratchets that up to, there's not even a question whether I'm going to throw my kid off a bridge or something, right? It's not even a question. Am, is it logically possible? Am I capable of doing it? Yes, of course, but I'm not going to do it, right? That's what it's going to be like. I think that's a, and the response, I didn't put it in the clips here, but one, but what John says, and John, if you hear this, what I see in response is he says something like, well, you know, that kind of does resolve it but it seems kind of like you're doing some mental gymnastics to get there. Um, and I think that speaks to the complexity of the answer. 
But uh, understand that what we're doing here is the claim is, the claim would seem to be, if we put it in philosophical language, that free will in heaven can't happen, right? Um, and if it can, a free will in heaven without evil can't happen. And if it can, why can't it happen here on earth? And this is just a response to that question. Now, it, it may be that there's some other answer that God knows that's a better answer. But so long as this answer is a viable option at all, it means that the criticism fails. So I think that's important. And to say, yeah, it kind of you kind of dealt with it, but it seems to me like it just strikes me as mental gymnastics. Again, that is, and this is no offense to John, this is just pointing it out to anyone in the audience who might be feeling the same way. Because some people did put it in the comments after last week's stream. But it's just to say, that is, recognize, a kind of gut reaction, a kind of emotional reaction to the answer given. But it's not one that is intellectually satisfying. The answer is intellectually satisfying, right? It's, it's this, well, I just... That, I don't know. Well, that, that sort of a response is just a gut reaction. Now, again, I get it. And one of the things I like about John is here he is thinking through this out loud. And I love that he's thinking through it out loud. And when you think through things out loud in the moment and you're being really unguarded and open, like I think he is, yeah, you say stuff like that. Yeah, I love that. But I'm just saying recognize that there needs to be a more robust response to the Christian claim if someone's going to remain of the persuasion that you can't have free will without evil in heaven unless you could also have free will without evil on earth. So I think I think all those things are important, important to mention. Um, all right. Oh, and this idea that, well, you know, he can just Thanos snap it all. Now, Sean says about that, well, yeah, God can do anything. I don't know if he put it like this, but this is the way to put it. Uh, God can do anything, um, but some things aren't things, right? And he did bring up the square circle, the married bachelor. Those aren't things. Those are contradictions, and contradictions aren't things. This is this is how C.S. Lewis kind of says it. Yeah, God can do anything, but contradictions aren't things. They're nonsense, right? So that's not we don't. So yes, God can do anything, but can God create a rock so big he can't even pick it up? Uh, shout out to the red pin, red pin logic. Um, because uh, he just did, uh, t uh, Tim Barnett just did a great response to that whole thing. That's describing a contradiction, and contradictions aren't things. So we can we can do away with that whole idea. Um, don't worry about that. So how does that bear on this conversation? Could God, um, could God create a, a situation where everyone freely always does the right thing, and there's never sin? Well, no, because that would be a contradiction. Um, it could be if there was a if God was aware of a way he could make the world such that everyone would of their own free choice do the right thing. Well, yeah, he could actualize that world. But um, and we would think that God would do something like that. But since there is evil and we understand our own propensity toward it, it's likely that there is no world of free creatures in which everyone does the right thing all the time. And so for that reason, um, we can we can recognize it would be a contradiction to then force everyone to freely do the right thing. And we can do away with that. God can do anything, but that's not a thing. It's a contradiction. It's nonsense. And so uh, so that's that's a great response to that, I think, that Sean makes. Um, and by the way, that doesn't sound pious to some Christians. That doesn't sound pious enough. Because many Christians, including at times people very close to me, very godly Christian people, like, that doesn't sound right to say that 
God can't do contradictory things. But understand, that's not a limitation on God. That is a compliment to God because God is not the author of confusion. All right, so let's um, let's move on and let's see this. This was a beautiful moment, I think, that allows me to kind of draw some of this together as we're moving forward. I, I, I do f- feel dissatisfied with the idea that the physical world is all we have. Um, and I do feel like I, exper- I, I feel like I experience moments in life where I feel like I'm touching the edge of something like ancient and like, I mean, almost like holy is the only right word. Um, like that I have moments when I'm playing with my kids where I'm just like, this moment matters. You know, I, I walked into the cathedral of Montmartre in, in Paris and it felt like this place is special. Um, to, to be fair, I also walked into the, uh, to a, a mosque in Abu Dhabi and felt a similar thing. Uh, so I don't know what to do with those, but I desire I, I want to know more about the infinite, you know, like, and I want to believe in God. I just don't know what that means yet. Okay. So now we come down to another thing that I think is a product of our culture that is so important. Remember how we said a moment ago, there is this scientism sort of thing, this, 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 uh, belief that even if someone would reject it on its face, it, it's in there. It's in, it's in our cultural DNA. And so even I have to recognize it and be aware of it and verbally call it out. Um, but you have this, this belief that if something, it cannot be scientifically tested uh, or something like that, if it doesn't come from science, if it comes from, you know, then, then maybe, or if at least if it can't be empirically in some way verified, then we shouldn't believe it. And that is a part of our culture. And that plays into this whole thing of visual certainty or to know for sure this, this pushing back ultimately to, to the highest iteration of that, this Cartesian certainty, this, this certainty where it's beyond all possibility of doubting. And then everything else is just somewhere in between. And when you're saying, well, I need to know for sure about something, it's not clear what you mean. And I think you mean something more along the lines of empirical demonstration of a thing. So that's a that's a that's a useless product of our culture that that needs to die because you can't really when you get philosophical about it you can't have what you're looking for foundationally with anything and certainly not with scientific things that the, what we understand about science changes sometimes even. So so you've got that so throw that out throw that I need to know for sure I need this cartesian certainty throw that out the window. Everything we know, we know to a degree of confidence, more or less. And so the question just is, how high is that degree of confidence? You, you don't ever get this for sure thing is for the birds, depending on what you mean by it. Um, but now we come to this issue of experience. Part of our cultural affectations is to reject experience. We, uh, you know, if it's if 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 what you're if what you're believing about um, metaphysics, if what you're believing about the way the world really is is based on experience. Well, that's not a good reason. That's not a good, that's, that needs to go away. In fact, even in the church, depending on the particular denomination, um, we'll say things like, well, you know, I mean, you can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your experience. You got to go by this. And, and look, I think there's a threading of that needle. I think there is both. Are we really going to say, I mean, are we really going to say that you can't 
that your experience of things isn't a guide when it is your experience of things that gets you to that empirical knowledge of, I see a tree in front of me. So I believe there's a tree in front of me. That is a type of experience, right? The fact that you can draw that out empirically. Um, so we're talking about degrees of experience as well. What John has just said here is, I have had this experience with my kids of knowing there is something deeper and I can only say holy and ancient. And I've, I've experienced it when I've been in this particular cathedral and, but I've also experienced it in a mosque, a grand mosque. And Hey, trust me, I, I feel you, man. When I was in Istanbul and went into, um, the Hagia Sophia, which at one time was the largest church and largest building in the world. Um, and, uh, and was, you know, a, a church and now it's a mosque. I recognized that same feeling. I've recognized that in, in those kind of places. Here's, here's what the thing is. The fact that you experienced it both in a Christian place and in um, a non-Christian like Muslim place doesn't mean, well, we just throw our hands up and don't know. What we recognize is, no, that experience does speak to something. You are tapping into something. There is something there and you seem to recognize it. So now you can go one of two ways with this. You can, you can sort of explain it away with brain chemistry and stuff. And we have an episode on that. That doesn't solve the problem. Ultimately, science can't even get, figure out consciousness. It certainly doesn't explain this. Does it give you some explanation of what's going on in the brain chemically? Yeah, sure. When you're experiencing worship or whatever, sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't get you there. So you can go that way. And, and that's, of course, to lean too hard to the everything needs to be verified empirically side of things, which you don't do in daily life. No one does. We don't live our lives that way, right? Or you can say, no, the way it seems is often the way it is. And it seems like I'm tapping into something here. And, and it, it seems to come at relevant moments, religiously informed moments, familial, relationally informed moments with my kids. Um, and that's important. Now, I, I, I just noticed here in the chat, someone says, um, Dustin says, an appeal to emotion doesn't make something reality. Right. But understand, I'm not giving you some deductive syllogism or some argument in that sense. This is a cumulative case. I'm saying, let's look at things about the way the world is and ask what makes the best sense of those things. So I'm not saying this is, you know, I, I so would like this to be true, that it must be true. Or I'm so afraid that this isn't true, that it must be true. I'm saying something a little bit more nuanced and important than that. There is something inside of us that reacts to that. Why is that emotion there? Not because that emotion is there, this is now what's true, but why is the emotion there? Why is that there? And you have, it's not as though other worldviews don't have an answer. The empirically driven worldview has an answer. I just think it's shot through with holes and doesn't, it doesn't get you to what makes the best sense of this, which is, of course, what we're after. So I, th I think that's a misunderstanding of what we're doing here. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so so let's go back to Dustin now. I I'm glad for this. Wrong, bud. I'll, I'll look past the um, obviously intentional condescension there. Those are byproducts of material things. Uh, again, that that is one explanation, right? It's not necessarily the explanation. It's an assertion. But you still need to explain to me consciousness. You need to explain to me why that is the way it is. I mean, 
I can go with the evolutionist, you know, the, the evolutional evolutionist explanation for our emotions and relationships. When I say, when they say like, why are, why do we find a waterfall beautiful? Perhaps it's because it, rep it represents a water source, which is survival, right? In, in the tribal sort of way. But what, you know, when you walk into a church <laughs> and you have this experience, I I'm not sure what's going on there. So uh, sorry, Dustin, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm skeptical of the claim um, and think that you should be more skeptical about these sorts of things. But, but, the, but the bottom line is, I think you're tapping into something there that is religious, that is there in Islam, that is there in Christianity, because in both, there is something super, supernatural going on. Um, and, and, and that you have to, it's, it's like I've said before, I don't question necessarily when a Mormon tells me that they have this internal spiritual experience that testifies whatever to them. I don't, and who, who am I to question their experience? I'm not questioning their experience. I'm questioning the content of that experience. And that's where we kick over to the evidential stuff and say, okay, now do we have reason to believe that Islam is true? So I think all of this is really important, but as long as you make the, we got to be careful when we're doing philosophy, we can't be so cavalier and have all this glib certainty that I see in the chat so often. What we need to try to recognize is with emotion, with morality, with these sorts of things, are we saying it would be so horrible that it can't be true? No, we're saying, why do we have this impression? And what does it mean? And what's the best explanation for it? So I think it's a, it's a comment that allows for some, some uh, response. But this experiential stuff counts for something. It counts for something because of that. So the skeptic, obviously, the empiricist, is going to dismiss it. Okay, but that's just our culture. That's all that is. So here's what I, where I want to draw, draw you down to something. And I want, if John listens to this, I want him to hear this. If we peel away this, this, um, I think fallacious search for certainty, this idea of for sureness that we don't use in most areas of our lives, if we peel that away and then we layer on that, no, that experience that you had, that does count for something. And then we include the evidential stuff. We have a powerful case for the truth of this. Now, um, I want to I want to kind of draw this to a close by looking to uh, something that Sean says in the end that is again something I've been saying a lot lately that I want you to hear hear him on and, and then I'll respond. And it's something I think about in my own life as well, just at a different angle, is to shed some of the false ideas of cultural Christianity that you and I have so grown up in and ask, what is it that Jesus really, really taught? And what is the gospel? And why is it that this person who lived has turned the world upside down more than anybody? I mean, it's amazing. Every religion wants a piece of Jesus. New Age wants him. Islam claims him. <laughs> uh, Buddhism says he's enlightened. There's something about this person. Okay, so um, this is interesting because... For those of you that are atheists out there, like the, you know, the type of, especially the type of atheist that in the hard sense that says that God does, that maintains the position that God does not exist. But even for the lack theist sort of atheist, that lack of belief sort of thing. Um, let's, let's, let's recognize something here. You're not going to find this persuasive, what I'm about to say. That's fine. 
Um, there's plenty on this channel. There's plenty elsewhere. There's plenty in Sean's stuff. There's plenty on Unbelievable Radio that you can dig your teeth into. But for those that are not in that category, for those in the audience who would say, no, I, I think it's reasonable to believe there's a God. I think there probably is a God. I just don't, I don't know about Christianity. Um, this is a pretty important piece, I think, that Sean sort of sum, summarized that I, I'll say it differently. If you believe at least that there's a God, think about where we can go from there. This God created relational beings. Now, we can always be overly skeptical and say, aha, but maybe he did that just to mess with us or whatever. But that's the pinhole thinking of certain skeptics that is really unhelpful. If we're trying to figure out what's the best explanation. So he, we're relational beings. This God created us, created a system that would result in us, however you want to frame that up, where we're relational beings that care about relationship. So it seems likely that he would want to communicate with us, right? And we're not saying it's a slam dunk. Remember, get that for sure, certitude, slam dunk stuff out of here. But it seems reasonable to believe that he would want that. It seems more likely than not that he, he created relational beings. He would want that relationship. So where did he do that? He must have done that. He must have tried to communicate with us in some way. Where did he do that? Well, um, let's look at the religions of the world, okay? Uh, strictly polytheistic religions can be written off um, immediately because they involve the contradiction of more than one maximally great being. Then we go to other incantations of what we could call polytheism, but they're really not in the strong sense of the term. They have a creator God, but then they have lesser quote unquote gods beneath them and, and that sort of thing. That, that's a different story. But, but when we, when we, I believe we can ratchet things down to the great monotheistic religions because I think all those others are shot through with difficulties, contradictions, problems that I've dealt with on this channel. I think it's reasonable to look at the three monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And this is kind of where Sean was going. Okay, just leaving it there, like obviously we can look at the, the problems with Islam, the, the the problems with the person of Muhammad, that he's supposed to be this person of incredible character and integrity, but we can see problems there. We can look at the contradictory nature of Allah. We can, we can look at Judaism and how it was pointing towards something, and that's we can, we can do all that, but let's just not do that. Let's just take it just with, okay, we've got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In that mix, and this is what Sean's getting to, there is a person who happens to be the most central figure in all of humanity. That's, that's not even a debate. That's not even up for debate. That's not the person who more statues have been built to, the person who has inspired more people, the person who um, our Western calendars focus around. I mean, this is the most, this person turned the world upside down, as, as Sean says. Never wrote anything down, and yet that was true about him. And his message was radical. It was a message of selflessness and love. And interestingly, as we look at that, it seems like that could be, that, that seems like an obvious answer to the question, if God wanted to communicate with us, how would he do it? He wanted to create, you know, he wanted to create relational people, wanted to communicate with them. It seems obvious that Jesus is probably your best candidate for that. And when you look under the hood of that, oh my gosh, it says that God became man and dwelt with us and shared this message of love. Um, it seems pretty, pretty powerful. And so um, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now, um, 
all of that said, let me leave with a word of warning. And I, I know that I know that there's been some drama in the chat um, related to, and I know that Pine Creek's been there commenting, but he will appreciate this, I think, because he says that this is a good, this is one of the big motivators that apologists are afraid to talk about, and I'm certainly not. Here's the thing. What struck me in this discussion, and also the one with Rhett and Link of Good Mythical Morning, is that they say, well, you know, my kids, I've got these kids and I have these experiences with my kids and what am I going to teach my kids and all these kind of things. And I'm not saying that, listen, hear my heart. I, I'm, I'm not saying this to try and just freak you out. Although if it creates some sobriety in your mind, I'm glad for it. But it's the Pascal's wager thing of it's safer to believe than not to. Um, that is that is an, an interesting discussion. But it's ratcheted up to a whole other level when you've got kids and you're bringing them along in this worldview journey with you. Now, listen to me. I don't care how this is seen. I don't care if someone wants to try and label logical fallacies and be snarky and all that. Kind of, I don't care. I really don't care. I want you to hear my heart here because I'm saying this because I care and I love you and I believe what I'm saying. You can't decide what your kids are going to believe, but you can certainly influence it. You can certainly influence it. And it's one thing for someone to say, to kind of indulge themselves and say, there's questions I don't have. Any, and I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm not speaking just to John or just to Rhett and Link. I'm just saying to anyone else in general, it, this is a, an incredibly serious issue because there is a Christian and biblical doctrine of hell. The Bible talks about a place called Gehenna. Jesus talks about it four times. Christians conceive of it differently as they reason from Scripture about what it means. Some believe in what is called eternal conscious torment, which is never, ever, ever ending suffering of some sort. Some believe in what's called conditional immortality and annihilationism, which means you will suffer perhaps commensurate, you know, pay a penalty, just like we understand with justice here in this world. You'll, you'll pay a penalty for your sins and then you'll die. You'll just cease to exist. Um, but understand, if you think that doesn't sound as bad, I get it. But on either sort of, on either conception of hell, it's not something you want for yourself or for your kids or for anybody else. I mean, think about it. If it's 60 years, if, if you're, if you could, if, if you knew that there was a 10% chance of you taking a particular action or speaking a particular message that your kids were going to spend 60 years with a debilitating illness and then die suffering. And yeah, then the suffering would be over, but there's a 10% chance you're going to do that to them. Don't come at me with, well, that doesn't seem so bad. No good parent in the right mind would do that. And so what I want you to recognize about what I'm saying is you better be darn confident when you walk away publicly and, and preach this message of unbelief to your kids or even the, you know, this, the, the way it's being ex expressed by a lot of the people walking away right now, because there is a heavy heavy price tag uh, attached to this for you and perhaps for them. Again, they have free will. You're not deciding for them what they're going to believe, but you do influence them. And I think that is a very important piece. You say, well, this is below the belt, Braxton. This is not cool. This is not what I expect from your channel. Hey, listen, I'm not doing this. I, I love everyone here and this is fun. 
but I'm not doing this just because it's fun. I'm doing this. It is fun, but I'm doing this because I believe it's true. And I believe that there are men and women who are, who need the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, because they need to be a part of a kingdom. Yes, because it's a father who loves them. Yes, all the wonderful things. Yes, because it's the right response to a holy and, 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 uh, and maximal God, but also because there is a penalty for remaining in your sins. So I want you to take that very seriously and, um, and, and rethink these things, I think. All right. Um, that's kind of the end of that sermon. That's kind of where I wanted to get to with this. Um, and I hope that it's been helpful. I, there were a couple of interesting questions that, that people asked me. I think Drew said, um, okay, Brando says, what is, what is Istiklal Kadeshi mean? Uh, I can't find where you said that. Yeah, here it is. Um, what does Istiklal Kadeshi, Kadesh mean? That is, it's Kadeshi. That is the main street in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, it's kind of like their Times Square. It, it's Istiklal Street. It's a really, really long street um, with huge European-style buildings because you're kind of there on the uh, boundary, uh, on the Bosphorus River. You know, it's, kinda, it's the boundary between east and west. If you want to know where the boundary is between the Western world and the Eastern world, that's considered to be it. The Bosphorus River is that divide. And Istiklal Street starts in the Times Square for um, Istanbul, Turkey, and then dumps out at the other end at the Bosphorus. And there was an incredible day in my life where I was in Istanbul. It was actually at the end of filming our documentary there. I was in Istanbul for four days completely alone. And one of those days, I walked all the way down Istiklal Street, got on a walked across a bridge to go to the famous um, market and spice market there. That's been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And on the way back, I got on a ferry. I thought, Oh, it'd be fun to get on this ferry. And there's an English, there's a language barrier there. So I said, this is going to go right over there, right? This ferry goes right over there to the other side of the river. Yep. Yep. And so I get on, it did not, it took me off miles and miles away to another land. And when I got off, I thought I was in Greece and it took me the rest of the day to get back. And it was terrifying. And I was accosted by a police officer and everything else. But anyway, <laughs> all that to say, that's Istiklal. And I hope that you get to go there someday because it is absolutely an amazing, amazing place. Someone, uh, Drew, I think mentioned that I have an Xbox controller behind me. It is not actually an Xbox controller, although I understand why you say that. I have an Xbox. That is a Stadia controller. That's a Stadia controller, which is Google's answer to the gaming community so that you can play live streaming uh, blockbuster video games from any device streaming from their servers uh, where they're at. And uh, you're, you're going to hear nothing but people talking smack about Stadia um, on the internet, but those are mostly people who've never tried Stadia and Stadia is awesome. So um, uh, this, this episode brought to you by Stadia, I guess. All right. Um, uh, anything else that we have that we need to cover? Let me see. Um, someone asked about, Oh, hey. Um, yeah, Jim Amberg says, and if I could find it, Jim, I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, Jim Amberg, thank you for the super chat, Jim. Um, says, it's never popular to talk about hell, but thanks for doing it. Yeah, you know, I when I preach, when I speak, it's very common for people to come up to me, older folks, to say, I've never heard anyone your age or younger 
talk like that, but that's how people talked back in my day. And I think there is a fear to talk that way because it sounds like you're trying to scare someone into heaven. Um, I'm not, I don't want to scare people just for the sake of scaring people, but because I believe this is true, think about it. Is it okay to scare someone out of smoking cigarettes? Is it okay to scare someone out of skin damage? Is it okay to scare someone, I mean, out of, you know, uh, unprotected sex and these kind of things? Then if you believe, if like me, you believe this stuff, it's okay to talk about the ramifications of it. And if you don't think so, I'm sorry, I'm not going to apologize for it. Uh, but thank you, Jim, for that. Thank you so, so much. Um, someone asked what my take was on Heiser and the divine council. Um, I can't find that anymore, but somebody asked it and, um, uh, oh, uh, Enderish says God created angels in heaven with free will who never sinned. Human beings are just different creatures that God created. That's the objective to the argument. Um, 40 minutes in, I'm not sure. So here's my take on angels. I do believe that angels have free will and we see angels exercising free will against what God wants um, in biblical history, right? We do see that. Um, they're, they're even in spite of having visual certainty, right? <laughs> about, about God and audible certainty about what he wants. But I think that is a point not to be missed. Now, you take the situation of Adam and Eve in the garden um, and the, the situation there, there is a tempter there in Satan, right? The Satan. And that tempter was there in heaven. There was a larger population and fewer people, apparently fewer angels, apparently um, rejected. But that's an important discussion. Uh, people often point out that Adam and Eve... Um, kind of couldn't help it because they didn't have any experience of sin. No, but they, they had been told what God wanted and they had been told that there were ramifications and they had fully developed cognitive faculties. So I think that's an important distinction there. But someone asked me about the divine council and that whole thing. Um, I can't find it anymore. I'm sorry. But the, the, the thing was, the thing is Michael Heiser, who was a director for Logos Bible Software and is a scholar of some sort. He has a book called The Unseen Realm that I've read that I think is a great book. Primarily, I think the best thing about it is um, his section on the angel of the Lord, which I think I agree with him is an Old Testament Christophany. It's Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. There are great reasons to think so. And at the very least, I think it gives you to it gets you to something like the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, or at least that there are more than one person to the Godhead. Really interesting stuff. But the, the most controversial and, and issue of that book is the idea that there are that the Elohim is is uh, refers to more than just the Godhead. It's classically been taken that El is God and you're just talking about God there. But but here you have these other Elohim, these other. And so he it's really shocking when you first hear it, because you think, well, Okay, is he saying that there that we have polytheism basically? And that's not really where he's going with it. What he's basically saying is other divine or other supernatural beings like angels and these higher forms of angels like cherubim and and seraphim, you know, maybe not angels at all, but they're but they could all L is kind of a category for that. And it's an interesting read, but I think um, there's some interesting stuff to say there. Um, all right. So this has been a fun stream, but we are already clocking in at an hour and 10 minutes. I'm going to go ahead and cut it out. But listen, I have really enjoyed this today. I hope that you have too. I always love it when um, we have uh, a group like this that's real talkative. It's been action packed. Um, turn down the music a bit. I'm going to have to talk to our mods and admin and find out 
what is our policy when perhaps someone is being a particular distraction in the chat? Because that can happen. And one of the things that I want to keep about Trinity Radio is that it is a community where we don't really restrict. We don't disable comments. If we ever do have to do that, it won't be very often, but um, we're going to have to look at that a little bit more. But thank you all for being here so much later in the week. We are going to have Jonathan Pritchett with us on a show. We're also going to have, um, we are also going to have, I'm going to be on uh, perhaps John McRae's show, What Do You Mean? Later in the week, I've never been on What Do You Mean? I hope that all that works out. So you'll want to watch that and be there for that. Also, we'll have uh, another response video that is more of the traditional style for our channel. Thanks so much for being here. Check out our sister shows, Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers, uh, The Bible Brodown with Billy Wendelin and Matt Chisholm, and uh, Steve Gregg's Narrow Path. Also, also check out um, our, our, our group on Facebook, Trinity Radio Primetime Discussion. We'd love to have you there. And we sure would appreciate it if you become a patron at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. I love all of you. This channel exists because we love skeptics. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thanks to all the mods, by the way. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, SlamRN. Thanks, Zom. Thanks, the Unapologetic Apologists. Shout out to Finding Truth on his new YouTube channel. Go check it out. Feel free to put a link, Finding Truth. And if I missed anyone else, thank you.